Hello and welcome to the Stack Magazine's podcast. My name is Stephen Watson, I'm the founder of Stack, and this week I'm speaking to Ian Birch, author of the book Uncovered Revolutionary Magazine Covers. Ian has spent his entire career in magazines, launching titles like Grazia, Red, Heat and Closer, but his book looks well beyond those titles to present a collection of great covers from the 1950s up to 2016. Not only has he chosen a great selection of covers to include, he's also tracked down the people who created them to get the inside stories behind the finished pieces that actually stood out on newsstands. I met up with him at the Edge conference in Munich a few weeks ago, but we ran out of time to actually speak then. So he came over to the stack office last week for us to record this conversation. Uh, It runs a little bit longer than most of our episodes, mainly because I got totally caught up in our conversation. And we talk about all sorts of magazine stuff, including covers, but much more besides. I think the most interesting aspect of it is the way that the function of magazines has changed over the last 20 to 30 years. Ian was there on the front lines creating some of the best-selling mainstream magazines of the early 2000s onwards, and I loved hearing him speak about the formulas for creating covers and how, in his opinion, and for a time at least, that process was able to turn out profitable, but some really quite dull covers. It's clear that magazines in the mainstream are currently having to rethink what they are and how they reach their readers. And I think that taking this sort of historical perspective is a really useful way of understanding that. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Ian Birch, the author of Uncovered. Ian, thank you very much for coming over. My pleasure. So you've got your great big thick book in front of us, uh, Uncovered. Tell us a little bit about what this book is all about. Um, Well, Uncovered is basically an oral history of magazine covers, and they range from the late 50s through to, in fact, 2016, late 2016. Um, The reason it starts in the late 50s is because it's an oral history. So not many people who worked on magazines prior to the late 50s, unfortunately, are with us anymore, with a great editor in the sky. Um, (laughs) So so that's why I started there. Um, And the idea is that I moved through the decades um, up to present day. But it's very much about, it's called revolutionary, it's subtitled revolutionary magazine covers. And it's important just to say quickly that revolutionary doesn't mean just up against the barricades. It's not just, you know, Paris 1968 or anything like that. It's revolution in a much broader sense. It's revolution in terms of those magazine covers that really were sort of what I call, you know, culture busting. They made a big sort of statement about something that was important at the time. They defied taboos, they attacked conventions. And that could be anything from a design convention to a political point, to a social point, um, to anything really. So the idea is that these are magazines, these are covers that sort of started a conversation. People talked about them. Um, and in a way, that's the simplest explanation. They're, magaz- they're covers that people talked about because they, they caught a moment in time. Well, okay, so let, let's get into some concrete examples because there's tons of interesting stuff in there. The, the earliest one, I think it's the earliest one you have, uh, is a magazine called One, uh, which is a, a magazine that was made for gay men 
uh, in the 50s and, well, why, why don't you tell the story? Right, well, it was a magazine, to be honest, I'd never heard of before and I, f I, I came across it through research and actually it was triggered by uh, one of those exhibitions, like I think it was the um, Revolution exhibition at the uh, Tate. Um, and I started researching it online and came across this extraordinary cover. As you say, the magazine is called One, um, and it was from August 1958, and it had this very simple black and white drawing on the cover of, of a man leaning against a kind of shaded background with a huge cover line that simply says, I'm glad I'm homosexual. And I'd put that out on the newsstand in middle America in August 1958, is a little short of extraordinary, you know. And it was the kind of, it seemed like an amazing way to start the book as well, because for that to be your first cover really did give the flavor of this is a culture busting kind of cover. And unfortunately, I broke my rule I'm allowed to do that once, I think. <laughs> and uh, everybody who was associated with uh, one back then, unfortunately, is no longer with us. Um, but I talked to a guy, um, a guy called Craig Lofton, who's an expert in and a university lecturer in, in Southern California, who basically, you know, there's nothing he doesn't know about this magazine. And so he sketched out this amazing history of how it came about and what it meant and... I, for example, it wasn't... Because I said to him, this is extraordinary, it's on the newsstand, because even today that would be extraordinary, I think, even in our so-called liberated times. Um, and he said, yes, they preferred it to be on newsstand because they were so nervous about subscription, because lists of names could easily be taken by authorities, and then they could be somehow, you know kind of approached as a result of those lists. So they much preferred not to subscribe in any shape or form or give any of their personal details, which of course makes complete sense, you know, for uh, 1958. Uh, of course, and I think, well, first of all, props to you for, you know, like the first thing that you've got in there is something that, I mean, I'd never seen before. I'm sure that most people, <laughs> most people picking up this book will not have seen one magazine before. Yeah. But also I think it really gets to the heart of something about the mainstream newsstand which is the way that its function has changed and as you say back then so those men those original readers would have been nervous about giving out their personal details the newsstand was this way to get ideas really challenging ideas out into the world and one of the like i hate feeling like someone who thinks that things were better in the old days but i couldn't resist going through the book looking at the older stuff the the really like you know big mainstream magazines that were doing really ambitious difficult things and thinking like that doesn't really happen anymore the, like it what, what, like what's changed what's happened yeah I, it's it's difficult that because there is a bit of the curse of nostalgia in some ways right. and i know exactly what you mean because the more i researched the more i discovered these extraordinary covers and i thought they could never exist today I mean, do I think covers, you know, to put it very simply, were better then than now? Um, no, I don't. But, and there are a lot of buts that I would <laughs> add to that. Um, and I think it's because it's, you know, there's so many factors at play. 
And I think one of the key things, and this is something, you know, you obviously know, is that, you know, at that time in the 60s and 70s and 80s in particular, magazines were the, perhaps the most, the primary engine of popular culture. So you could do all sorts of things in magazines that you can't really do now. And that's obviously because something called the internet has taken over and social media and blah, blah, blah. So it's completely not only destroyed the business model of magazines, but it's actually made magazines rethink what their purpose is. And as a result of that, rethink their covers, because obviously, and I'm stating the obvious, the cover is the most important page in any magazine. Because mm-hmm. if you get the cover wrong, you might as well give up and walk away. Because, mm-hmm. you know, we always used to say back in the days of EMAP that there's no such thing as a good magazine with a bad cover. Mm-hmm. It simply doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. There may be fabulous shoots and whatever and pieces inside, but nobody's going to pick it up if there isn't a good cover. So I think, I think covers are very much have to be judged by how they responded to the culture of their time. And obviously that changes throughout. So it's the same difference as say, you know, was rock and roll in the fift- late 50s more exciting, more dangerous, more revolutionary than early hip hop in the early 90s? Of course not. Uh, because both were extraordinary because they were kind of, they, they were new voices. And that's where you have to judge it, I think, because a great magazine is often a new voice that was missing from the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what really magazines... I think that's why magazines were so powerful for so long and indeed are again. Um, But talking about the 50s and 60s, I mean, if you were a gay man or a gay woman in the late 50s, to see that on the newsstand must have been the most extraordinary mm. thing, mm. you know, in terms of here's a community, here's a voice, here's, a, here's a, a platform, and so on. And then I think, you know, there are certain, um, there are certain kind of exceptions in the sense of um, the legendary Esquire covers in the 60s. So, you know, the dawn of all magazine covers is George Lois and some designers kind of go, oh no, not George Lois again, because, but the reason he is the dawn is because he's kind of a genius, not kind of, he is a genius. So the covers that he did over a decade from I think 62 to 72 in America, many of them are just extraordinary. And actually what was so interesting about that was that Esquire was a very mainstream magazine but it had the kind of covers that had the kind of energy and attack of almost what we would say was an independent mm, magazine. Mm, so mm. you had those two come together. Mm, mm. And they were graphically so simple and powerful. And I think the other interesting thing there is George Lois was basically working in advertising. And he was approached by Harold Hayes, the editor of, of Esquire to come in and create these big momentous statements. That's precisely what he asked George Lewis to do. So it was almost kind of this new sort of fusion of advertising power and directness and force within an editorial setting. Mm. Um, I, I, so I guess that the famous, uh, the, the most famous example of that is the Muhammad Ali um, cover, uh, which uh, I think it's 1968. I think that yeah. pro- pro- probably most people have yeah. seen that before. But again, you know, the like props to you because before that there was a Sonny Liston cover. 
uh, in 63 with Sonny Liston in a Santa hat. And so I'd never seen that cover before. I love getting the story direct from George Lois. You have like the preparatory sketches to show the thought process. It, it actually, it genuinely gives some insight into the whole process. Yeah, well, thank you. That's very, yes, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, and also he'd never, sh- he'd never um, let those preparatory uh, sketches be shown before. So that, I was thrilled. He said, would I like them? So I said, uh, I think so. <laughs> Excuse me, I think so. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you're right, it's an extraordinary cover. I mean, because it's so in your face, you know. And this was, again, December 1963, when America was a very, very divided and racist society, as you know. And what's interesting that George Lois, he, he, he shot it with a guy called Carl Fisher. And he did a lot of stuff with Carl Fisher. You know, they were a bit like Lennon and McCartney of Esquire covers. And he and Carl Fisher also did Muhammad Ali as well. So, I mean, this was an extraordinary partnership. Um, So he refused to let any cover lines go on this cover. He didn't even want the words Sonny and Liston on the cover because he said to me, if we put those, if, if we put Sonny Liston on the cover, it immediately talks about the famous boxer celebrity that is Sonny Liston. I want this cover to look like a black Santa Claus. It's almost like I don't care who it is. I don't care who the the person is. I want it to be this very powerful graphic statement of a black Santa Claus. Because, and I quote from him, and I can't really swear, but he he, he swears like a trooper, which is is very funny. You can totally swear. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he talked about how every kind of you know, middle-class family. It was, their, it was their kind of vision of hell that this kind of black Santa would come down the chimney on Christmas Eve, um, which was, you know, very funny and classic George Lois. Uh, he did, I mean, Lois, Lois kind of excelled at these big, simple, and sim- by simple I mean incredibly direct, uncluttered, really focused images, you know, like the Muhammad Ali, and he also did a he did a very famous cover that was only type um, in August '66, and the type simply said, "Oh my God, we hit a little girl," which was basically a quote from a GI in Vietnam when this kind of 18-year-old GI, you know, I mean, how terrible is all of that, um, realized that he'd accidentally kill this little girl and mm. he saw the little girl being carried out mm. dead by her mother mm. and so you know the emotional impact of that mm. so it's kind of one you know six seven words in black and white on a cover mm. can be equally as powerful uh, as powerful as mm. you know mm. a quite complicated shoot like Muhammad Ali mm. because it was a very complicated shoot that mm. because he's got arrows sticking out of him uh, the arrows wouldn't stick on his body because they'd used paste, as in very basic sort of paste that you'd put up a poster with to try and keep the arrows stuck to his body. But they'd had the arrows handmade, so they were very heavy. So the arrows kept sagging. So they had to come up with a solution and they ran fishing wire along the ceiling and then dropped it down to the uh, to the arrow and attach the fishing wire to the arrow which held it up and then they had to touch the fishing wire out 
of the picture, obviously, in the in the final process. Um, I, I think this is part of what I'm getting at. You know, I don't think that magazine covers were better then than they are now, but. I do know that if someone wanted to create that cover today, they wouldn't have to run fishing wire across the ceiling. It's almost like the... I think two things have happened. I think the, the, the toolbox has expanded so much that now kind of everything's possible with any image. And actually, the, in the independent magazines, I think some of the most striking covers that we see really take advantage of that in terms of playing with images in ways that your eyes can't really comprehend. So I think technologically things have changed, but also culturally things have changed. So maybe magazine covers haven't got you know, more boring. But I, I would argue, I think that the mainstream newsstand has got more boring. And I think that, you know, when you look at, so some of the, the most recent covers that you've got in here, so you've got um, the big issue, um, obviously that's not sold on a newsstand, that's sold on the street. You've got the New York Times magazine, that's not sold on a newsstand, no. it comes packaged with something else. And it's almost like that, you, you, whereas... At the beginning of the book, these are covers that are being used to sell a magazine on the newsstand. As we get further through, it tends to be more like these are covers that are on magazines that don't have to sell on the newsstand. Yeah. I mean, I, I take your point entirely. I mean, I think uh, it was, again, I would say, you know, the rise of the internet, stating the obvious. Um, but I think also, I think up until possibly the kind of mid to late 90s, you still had a lot of invention on magazine covers. So you had magazines obviously ranging from like, you know, ID in the face on the style side to things like Bloomberg Business Week, which were extraordinary covers, especially when Richard Turley was the art director and Richard Turley and I was obviously doing all sorts of interesting things in the independent sector with Good Trouble and Civilization. And he's kind of, he's kind of amazing, you know, art director, I think. Um, and, you know, magazines like Colours with Toscani. Colours was an unbelievably radical magazine. And even more extraordinary, because it was funded by Benetton, obviously the global fashion company. So that, that was an unbelievable mixture of sort of, you know, high street fashion meets the most radical statements about AIDS and sexual identity and multiculturalism and so on and so forth. Um, but I take your point, I think towards the end of the 90s, and maybe I'm just talking about my own experience here, but I think the sort of rise of celebrity magazines really started to kind of kill off a lot of, you know, of that more adventurous art direction, or just ideas, playing with ideas. And speaking as a man who worked in this, you know, having worked in Heat and Closer and Grazia, um, which sold, which made him up millions of pounds, were very successful, had huge audiences and so on. But it was all about creating a formula. So once you had got a, a cover formula, you more or less stuck to it. So it was kind of small changes within a bigger format, a bigger formula. Um, and it was all about voice rather than and, and kind of news as it were, as opposed to design. Um, and I think the king of that is People magazine in America, you know, because I kind of think People is, is the most extraordinary and most extraordinarily successful magazine ever. And if anyone has ever come up 
with a reasonably watertight cover formula. It's People magazine. But even the, they get it wrong sometimes. But, you know, we were doing that. But it, the whole kind of thinking changes when you do high-frequency, very newsstand-driven, very high-turnover covers like Heat Closer and Grazie. And, you know, and there were a million copies of them, you know, all those things that came out as a result of Heat and Closer. Um, and I think that, you know, I think also around that time, it was this combination of factors that all came together. It was that, the move to that. It was also um, things like, obviously, the rise of, of the internet. It was also magazine sales for the more middle market were beginning to decline particularly women's general interest titles, you know, the Glamours, the Marie Claire's, the L's, and so on and so forth, were finding it harder and harder, not only to get advertising, but also get traction on the newsstand. And when that happens, publishers pull back very quickly. You know, they, their kind of default thinking is, what is the formula? Stick to it. Don't change. I'm not being you know, necessarily critical of that because, boy, do I understand that when you've been an editorial director of these things, you know, and you just see the sales charts going in one bad direction and then the advertising and so on. But it takes a very brave management team to go, you know what, we should do something really different and really make people sit up. And most of them, I talk broadly, did not go that route. They went the route of keep it simple. It's like the 5-5 five, five rule I talk about in the book, you know. It's got to be eye contact. It's got to be a smiley face. It's got to be a kind of warm atmosphere. It's got to be this, this, this. I mean, there's a checklist of everything. Um, which is fine, but it's kind of dull as ditch water, you know. <laughs> and also, it doesn't sell. No. I mean, and that's what the independent sector picked up on. And again, I'm oversimplifying, but they kind of started creating something you wanted to keep as opposed to something you wanted to throw away, which is exactly what the weeklies were all about. Because, you know, the worst rule in the weekly was to actually keep something for a day longer that might stop you buying the next issue, right? Um, the independent sector understood you know, came up with this almost hybrid idea of a book and a magazine. Fabulous production values. It was something you wanted to sit on your coffee table. Again, I use that in no pejorative sense whatsoever because it's, it's a form of identity. It's a form of, you know, this is who I am, which a great magazine should be. Um, so it was keeping it. So you didn't throw it away. What you did was you filed it on your bookshelf alongside the other copies of that magazine um it was more like your vinyl in a way you know if you were a vinyl collector you never threw a vinyl away you file it you know so you had this new kind of approach to things um and i think also the more um what what independent sector did very well was it get it got more and more specialist more and more niche so rather seeing what was happening in the mainstream and everyone could see that the very broad-based magazines were not working because you you didn't need it, you know. You've, everything was online. 
but the very specialist form of information, community, identity, uh, was something you did want, you know. So I think this started to unfold over, you know, from the early, I mean, Grazia came out in the early, like 2004, I think it was, 2003, 2004. And I think kind of, certainly from my point of view, that's when I could see this whole kind of new thing develop. Um, and a lot of legacy media companies, um, it's taken them a long time to kind of really think through a new print strategy. And now they're doing that. And in fact, if anything, I'm oversimplifying. They're actually looking at the independent sector for their new print strategy, you know. So a lot of a lot of what had been monthlies that are now going four or six times a year are basically taking the business model of, you know, if you're a man's magazine, fantastic man, or, you know, that kind of thing, or if you're a woman's magazine, the gentlewoman, you know. Um, so I think what interesting, we were just talking about Esquire in its glory days in the 60s. Right. Um, and we've just had the relaunch of Esquire uh, over here now. And so I think I'm right in saying that that's gone to six times a year. It's much thicker. It has some of those independent magazine design cues in terms of fewer cover lines. And like, it, I, I wonder whether that's the answer. I, I would, because actually they're, they're such fundamentally different things. Yeah, I, I'm not sure it is, but I think, you know, it's the answer they find at the moment. And I think, you know, I mean, I think Esquire is a very good magazine. I would say that, wouldn't I? Because <laughs> I know the people there. I used to work there and I, they're all very smart people. So putting that to one side, I mean, I think for Esquire to survive, it had to do something. And I wasn't involved in it, obviously, because I'd left. But I think that what they've come up with is, is the, the best possible solution for the time being. Is it the best possible long-term solution that you're suggesting? I don't know. Um, is it a good-looking, well-written magazine? Yes, it is. Is it also now part of the new kind of you know, multi-revenue ecosystem and all those ghastly phrases, you know. Yes, it is. So will they make more money by having special events at posh clubs around London? Very possibly, and good luck to them, you know. I hope they do well. Um, and so on and so on. Will they do lots of, you know, commercial content? Of course they will, because all, all upscale brands are doing that now in exactly the same way that independent magazines are creating their own creative agencies, you know. Mm. Tyler Brule was the king at that. He sort of invented that model. Still, still is the king. Still is the king. <laughs> still is the king. And, you know, I tip my hat um, because, you know, when he did Win Creative, he, people thought he was, I don't know, mad or what was he up to? But actually, he is an you know incredibly smart guy. Um, we, okay, so we, we've brought ourselves up to literally up to like the current moment with uh, the new Esquire. Um, that I'm mindful that you know the nature of books. You know, you had to hand this thing in a long time ago. So the the most the last thing in there is uh, 2016. What have you seen in 
the like intervening three years. So since you know, since you sent this book off, what have you seen that you thought, oh God, I wish I could have had that in there? Well, <laughs> I mean, the immediate answer is, you know, the two biggest things to have revived magazine covers are surprise, surprise, Trump and Brexit. So I happily, luckily, ended just as they were beginning, right? So I managed to get in the famous Adele Rodriguez covers of Time. Um, would I have liked to do more of them? Yes, because they've become even more radical and even more extraordinary with Der Spiegel and so on and so forth. Um, and the same applies to Brexit, you know. Um, Private Eye is still really the main, I think, magazine to take on Brexit. I think it's disappointing how weak a lot of other magazines have been around Brexit, whether you're pro or anti it. Um, it's very clear where I come from on that stand. But um, I think, you know, Private Eye has done a fantastic job at actually, you know, highlighting highlighting the, the issue. Um, so I think that those two, those two kind of political firestorms have continued to rage and will continue to rage, especially as, you know, what we're hearing today and at the moment. Um, I think the other thing I've seen is um, in terms of the independent sector, you know, it's booming even more than it was. If I go into any sh into a mag culture, or whatever, five hundred plus titles are there. Extraordinary. Um, I also think that um, they're gaining more ground. They're gaining more stature. More and more of them are moving into this sort of middle ground between. Yes, they're independent magazines, but they're coming dangerously close to what is the new, or creating the new mainstream, in fact. So a magazine like Gentlewoman, which I think is, I'm hugely, you know, impressed by, um, is sort of in that middle ground at the moment, because you could sort of argue that it's creating the new, a new kind of mainstream, if that's the right word, for that market. Because, you know, in some ways it's as important what it's doing is as important as what the new Edward Enenful Vogue is doing, you know, obviously on different scales, but in terms of cultural impact, both are equally important, I think. And, um, and, and I would love to see Vogue put a woman with a beard on the cover. Yes. Well, hey, you know, you never know, you never know. But uh, um, I think it's kind of... Um, you know, I think it's 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 really kind of gained momentum. I think the range of titles is extraordinary, and I think the increasing kind of um, niche audiences are kind of fascinating. Um, I think one of the things that isn't happening as much, apart from the stack yourself, which is you know an incredibly valuable resource, is distribution. Because apart from the stack, and I'm lucky because I live in London, you know, and when I say that, I mean there are several, you know, bigger news agents in central London that, and I'm not just talking about specialist news, I'm talking about some of the bigger Soho-based news agents that actually carry more of these, these um, independent magazines. But I think it's a sort of... I think it's a real shame that there isn't a kind of body that overs oversees it and lobbies for it, 
Now, that might militate against the whole idea of being an independent sector. And people might say, oh, God, no, we don't want to do that. You know, it's too corporate. It's, you know, that's what we're trying to escape. But having said that, you know, um, it just seems to me there's so much to be gained by, by those magazines coming together, sharing expertise, sharing content, maybe. Because, um, and the, I talked to, I think, you and Rod at, at the, the conference we were at recently about, there was a... There was a, a unit in the late 60s where the underground press um, shared content uh, for no money. So, you know, Oz in the late 60s took stuff from German magazines in the late 60s and so on and so forth. It was a different universe. There were many, there were much fewer independent magazines. You know, it was a completely different cultural ethos and so on and so forth. Um, but you sort of wonder whether, maybe not sharing content at this stage, but, but you know, at least sort of if there was some kind of body that over, oversaw it. I mean, there was, there was a great cover of The Face in the early, I think it was 1993, which was, um, it was a great issue because it was basically Nick Logan re reaching out to, I think, seven different European independent magazines to do a Europe-based issue. Boy, do we need that now. <laughs> but I'm moving on. And was it that great an issue? Possibly not. Did it matter? No. Why? Because it was such a good idea. And I remember buying it. I remember, I remember buying it in, in Soho, in London. And just it, was, it just seemed to me such an exciting idea. I'd never heard of most of these independent magazines, you know, like Ur from Holland and Frigidaire from Italy. I mean, all great names, but I'd never heard of them. Um, uh, but it didn't matter because it was just it was just really exciting, the whole idea of it. And and actually, if you read the, the editor's letter, the kind of mission statement, it's extraordinarily prescient for what's happening today. But I say that because you kind of wonder whether the independent sector could do something like that today. Mm. Not the same, obviously, mm. but something that had that kind of sense of, sense of combined purpose or thinking behind it because, um, because the people who run these magazines are so smart and they're so globally driven, you know, because they don't think about, you know, their audiences aren't just UK-based. Their audiences are global. And that's the way they launch the things, because so many of them are launched out of websites anyway, or big Instagram feeds or whatever. So they already start with that sense of global thinking, that sense of kind of global concern, you know. So I think it's... Um, I, I wonder if that's a way for them to go, because you sort of think, where do they go next? And... I suspect that, you know, they will just get bigger and bigger. Some will break out and go mainstream in exactly the same way back in the day. Time out, once a radical underground, you know, publication, and a very good one, became really mainstream. For example, Rolling Stone, once an incredible, incredibly radical left, for America, quite left-wing, publication from 68 to about 71, 72, 
became the voice of corporate rock. And again, I don't say that, you know, patronizingly or negatively. Um, so I, I just, we're, we're going to have to wrap up very shortly, but I really want to talk about this because this is another thing that struck me reading the book. See, I'm not sure that's right. I'm not sure these magazines that we see now will cross over into that kind of mainstream success because it strikes me that, you know, when Nick Logan started The Face, he took, like, he basically like got hold of all the money that he could and it was, it was through his contacts and expertise and hard work, he managed to cut through and find a, a national and then international readership. There's so much stuff these days. Yeah. There's so many things. I'm not sure that happens anymore. I'm not sure that, like, you know, Michael Heseltine leaves Oxford University and with a chum starts a massively successful publishing company. I, I'm just not sure that happens. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't disagree with that at all. I mean, I think, you know, scarcity is a great thing. So, you know, Nick was very lucky as we were, you know, on Smash Hits, because when I was on Smash Hits 100 years ago, there was nothing else like it, you know, and, and suddenly this weird thing called MTV came along and it all made sense. Pop was colour again. I mean, I think it's kind of how you define mainstream. Do I think there will ever be those kind of that scale that mainstream magazines used to have? Absolutely not. Do I think that something can gain more stature, more status than, it, than maybe the smaller area that, that independent sectors work out of at the moment? Yes, I do. But will that ever be the kind of numbers and money that Vogue at its peak or whatever, you know, people at its peak, at its peak or, you know, FHM, remember FHM, God, at its peak? No, it won't because we live in a time of, you know, far too much media, and um, also everyone is locked into their own little bubbles about that media anyway. So do we have to redefine what mainstream means? Yes. Maybe the word mainstream will become redundant because there'll be no such thing as the mainstream. There'll only be platforms that are, if you like, mainstream because they, they basically are the pipeline to deliver everything. Um, but if you say are interested in music, for example, Will there be certain brands that you want to go to because you trust them, because they represent how you think and feel, um, because you enjoy reading them, because they teach you something? Yeah, I do think that will happen. You know, will those change more rapidly than they did before? Yes. But will there be, at a certain time, um, you know, a magazine that sort of, um, sums up that seems to be at the forefront as opposed to you know one of the crowd yes I think that will happen so maybe it's about I think we're we're violently agreeing here you know, <laughs> in the sense of I think you know is the gentlewoman at the moment ahead of the pack within that audience yes it is will it stay there I have no idea um I, I would suspect that Penny Martin, the editor, also doesn't know either. But she's not, she's thinking more about, you know, she's thinking about different things. She's thinking about, you know, how can she turn it into a more multi-platform brand? And perhaps, you know, it's going to be less about the print product and more about the event, which we're seeing more and more. 
I mean, you know, the era of the mainstream magazine as we knew it in the 60s, 70s and 80s and early 90s is over. It's over, you know. Um, but that doesn't mean that there won't be very strong, important, relevant, stimulating, provocative titles or brands that come through and have a similar effect, but in a much more kind of focused way. Love it. Liam, I could literally talk to you about this all day, but we need to stop. Thank you so much for coming over. Well, thank you. It's been great. Thanks. Okay, that's all for this week. I'd like to say thanks again to Ian for coming over and speaking. And of course, if this all sounds interesting to you, check out Uncovered Revolutionary Magazine covers to delve into all those stories of what it took to create these great magazines and their covers. Or if you want to hear lots of stories of creating magazines, check out our podcast archives. Just search for Stack Magazines wherever you get your podcasts and we should be in there. We've got loads of conversations with independent magazine makers and we had a new episode every week. So make sure you follow us while you're there and we'll be able to deliver the next one to you as soon as it's ready. Thank you very much for listening to this one and we'll be back with another episode next week.